Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. Dana Lustbader. Uh, Dr. Lustbader is a palliative care physician. Uh, she is with ProHealth New York, uh, located in New Hyde Park. Uh, she's joining us on our program to talk with us about uh, this issue of making sure that your family knows your health care wishes. Now, just saying that, I probably got an immediate reaction from everybody listening to our discussion today. In some cases, that reaction is <gasps> where people gasp, whether they did aloud or mentally, because it's probably the last thing that a lot of people think of. Dr. Lusbader, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you. Good morning. Now, I said that probably was the reaction. Is that fairly common that people either wince or gasp when this topic is brought up? You know, it, it does happen, but the, the truth is that certainly people with serious or advanced illness want to talk about what is important to them while they're living and for the time that they have left, whatever that may be. So most people, especially if they have a serious or advanced illness, want to talk about what's in store for them, what they want to accomplish. Um, and those that are healthy, without any illness at all, often want to make sure that if something were to happen to them, the things that are done to them medically meet their values and, and preferences regarding how they live their life. So that might be an initial response for some, but we certainly know that with people who have serious or advanced illness, over 90% of them want to talk about it with their loved ones and their doctor. But what we know is that only 30% actually do. So we know that most people who have advanced illness do want to have these conversations, but they're not having them. Okay, then I guess what's, what's the problem? Is it something as simple as just getting the conversation started? Exactly. And I, and I think there's been a lot of movement nationally toward having more conversations. Um, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, has helped with that. There have been a lot of other initiatives in the public light that have just started this conversation and normalized it, really. But it is something that's very important. And we spend a lot of time thinking about lots of other decisions in our lives, where to live, where to go to school, what to major in, in college perhaps. But we, we should also spend time thinking about what would happen and who would help make decisions for us should there ever come a time we can't. Is there a way that you can share with folks listening to us that um, almost like a way to, to get the actual conversation started? I mean... Sure. So 
let's just imagine a, a a mother and daughter having tea or breakfast or something of any age, and let's just say the conversation goes something like this. You know, Mom uh, was listening to a radio show, and they were talking about National Healthcare Decisions Day, which uh, is a time when people think about who might make decisions for them if if they can't. And I was just thinking about it myself, and I was just wondering, you know, what kinds of things, Mom, are important to you as you get older that are so important to you, you know, life wouldn't be worth living if you couldn't do them. So, you know, for me, Mom, it might be uh, reading a book or going to the movies or hanging out with my friends and recognizing them. And I'm wondering for you, what what matters to you that makes life worth living? Seems like such a simple way to get the conversation started. Because, again, you're taking... Really, the way in which you phrased it, I thought was perfect because it takes a sense of pressure off. You know, it's not pressure on you and asking the question. It's not like you're being probing and asking the question in any way. And it also creates something which you're opening up. You're treating it more like a dialogue than anything else. You know, and that's exactly right. It it is a dialogue, and it's a dialogue over time. And it's really a conversation about what matters most to people at any stage of life. So we want to avoid talking about dying and death and machines and tubes because that really misses the point. Mm-hmm. The point is, how do we live the best possible life we can with whatever conditions we are faced with? And that conversation is what needs to happen at every stage of life with, with the person who might make decisions for you if you're ever in a position that you cannot. And the idea is that if you plan today, there can be a certain level of comfort tomorrow. That's exactly right. And not only is there comfort for the person with the illness because they know their wishes regarding medical care will be followed, there is also a sense of comfort and uh, less anxiety around making decisions for the person who's been charged with having to make those choices for their loved ones. So they will feel more confident. They will know what their their loved one wants and values regarding health care, and they'll be able to make good choices. There is nothing worse. There is no more uncomfortable situation, I would say. And unfortunately, I have been through this personally than to be in that situation where there has been something tragic that has happened to a loved one and you're making critical decisions, literally on the spot. And the reality is you haven't had that conversation or series of conversations. And, of course, everything you're doing, you're second-guessing. Um along with the fact of just the sense of feeling pressured. I mean, it's a role that no one should be in. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And we know that family members who have been in those positions often suffer from anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder afterward because they weren't prepared. You're exactly right, Bob, that these decisions are often made in a crisis in the ICU or in the emergency room. And these are the worst kinds of places to be stressed and making these decisions. And then if you're not sure what your 
your loved one would have wanted because you never had these conversations. It's, it's even more stressful, and the stress can linger for months or even years in the survivors. And so that's why it's so important that we have these conversations early, that a healthcare proxy is completed so that everybody knows who might make the decisions for someone uh, should these situations come up, and then that these conversations happen over time, especially if someone has a serious illness. When you look for somebody to be an advocate, if you're in a situation where you're um, incapacitated or unable to um, make decisions for yourself, what is it that you should be looking for as qualities of that advocate? It's a great question because it's not always your domestic partner or spouse. Sometimes they may crumble if you get very ill or sick. So you might select someone else who you think could handle pressure or even represent your views. There, I have many patients who maybe don't appoint their spouse, but they appoint an adult child or a good friend because their values are maybe different than the person they might live with, or they know that if they were to get very, very sick, their domestic partner, for example, might not be able to step up and make those kinds of decisions in a, in a crisis. So you want to select somebody who knows your wishes and will be able to help in medical decision-making at a time when you're not able to do so. Where in this whole process does one's doctor or physician um, fall into the discussion? Because, you know, talking with the advocate is one thing, but your doctor also needs to know what your wishes are. Yeah, that's right. And so... That's especially important if anyone has an advanced illness. So if someone has advanced emphysema, COPD, which is a lung disease, or heart disease, or cancer, or advanced dementia that's progressing. But for people who have advanced progressive diseases, these conversations should be occurring with the doctor regularly and every time there's an an acute or clinical change where things have gotten worse, like being hospitalized for that condition getting worse. Those conversations should happen with the doctor regularly so that your wishes can be noted in a medical order uh, so that they can be followed. It's very important that for people with serious and advanced illness, conversations happen over time. For people who are otherwise healthy, a healthcare proxy is what should be completed and a copy should actually be given to the doctor Another copy should be given to the healthcare agent, the person who's going to make decisions for you, and then you should keep a copy yourself. These documents should not be put in a safe because then they are not available when needed. And in terms of the information with those documents, it is important or is it not important to have this literally written down? Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I I think what's most important is to appoint a healthcare proxy and make sure they know your wishes and what is important to you. More in the conversation, as you mentioned earlier, Bob, where you tell them what matters to you and you know you want to be able to walk and or, or read a book perhaps or watch TV, whatever it may be that matters to you. And if you lose those abilities to enjoy mint chocolate chip ice cream and you know watch a TV show that you really enjoy or recognize your grandchildren, if you're no longer able to do those things, then you might tell your advocate that life wouldn't really have much value for you, and then decisions would be made accordingly. 
that's the kind of thing you have conversations with your, your advocate about. But the form, the healthcare proxy form, is really all that is needed. If, though, you have an advanced or serious illness, there are other forms that are required that are medical orders that can actually be followed. When we're talking about um, the idea of an advanced care plan, part of the discussion also needs to talk about this area of what's referred to as life-sustaining treatment. Okay, And again, a lot of people do not like to talk about this or even think about this, but it is important to have the discussion because it really comes down to, I guess, first of all, getting a sense of how the person feels even about that topic. Yeah, exactly right. And life-sustaining treatment means being in an intensive care unit on a breathing machine. Um, And when we say life-sustaining treatment or life support, that's usually what we're talking about is being in an ICU, an intensive care unit on those kinds of machines. And there are times when those machines work really well and people come off of those machines and recover uh, from an accident or an acute injury or something that was temporary and they, they get better. But then there are other times where people might have advanced and terminal disease like advanced cancer, for example, or something else like dementia, advanced dementia, and maybe those machines wouldn't provide a quality of life that is valued by that person. And that's where the healthcare proxy needs to know what matters most to that person. That if that person says, look, I want to be able to recognize my grandchildren or my children and friends and live independently, then perhaps going on those kinds of machines or even going to an ICU in the first place would be contraindicated. It wouldn't meet their goals, and therefore they wouldn't want to do it. When do you get to the point of actually having a discussion about whether it's appropriate to or when to stop life-sustaining treatment? Yeah, and, and again, it, it's always it's always preferable to, to have these conversations ahead of time so that many people, for example, don't want to die in a hospital or an ICU. And so the sooner these conversations happen, the more likely it is that someone with serious illness can get the palliative care they need at home where they live so that they would never even need to go to an emergency room or hospital. That's really the ultimate goal for many people. They value being at home, puttering around in their kitchen, being with their loved ones, being with their dog or cat at home. And so going to an ER or hospital would be maybe the worst thing they could imagine because they know it wouldn't provide them a quality of life they value. So we would try to provide palliative care at home for those people. But then there are some people who say, look, I'd like to have a trial of that, maybe for a week, let's see if we can overcome this issue, and they might have a short trial of going to the ICU or life support. But all of these kinds of decisions really depend on the exact situation at the time, which is why it's almost impossible to talk about those specifics until they actually happen. And so the healthcare proxy form allows for, you know, appoint someone who would be able to hear what's going on now and make a decision that you might make if you were hearing the same thing. We're talking on our program, an interesting discussion with Dr. Dana Lustbader. She is a, a palliative care physician with ProHealth New York, which is located in New Hyde Park. And she is talking with us about um, this topic of health care decisions 
and it's an important one, uh, this idea of making sure that your family knows your health care wishes. One of the things that I was thinking in preparing for this discussion today, too, is the idea that um, I guess it's important for someone who is in a situation like we're talking about to be able to express um, things that they would want people who are close to them to know before they pass on. Um, is that an appropriate question for an advocate to ask? It is, and I, I think maybe the question might be, you know, Dad, tell me what matters most to you. What gives your life the most meaning? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes, you know, even though we might know people very well, we've never asked a question like that. What matters most to you each day, or what gives you pleasure in your life right now? Um, if someone has an advanced illness, it's especially important to ask, you know, what are you worried about right now? What gives you pleasure right now? Because that will help the advocate make choices that really uh, meet meet their loved one's needs and, and make, make better choices if you ask certain open-ended questions. What gives life meaning for you right now? Maybe you remember what gave them meaning 20, 30 years ago, but a good question to keep asking as time goes on is what what gives life meaning for you right now? What is so meaningful to you that if you couldn't do it, life wouldn't have value? And that will then help the advocate make decisions later on regarding the other medical treatments you, you had mentioned. All right. One of the things that I also had thought, uh, Dr. Lesbader, is is there um, some sort of a, a resource where... People who are listening to this discussion today who are touched by things you're sharing with us um, perhaps could go and it would serve as kind of a resource for them as they try to put together an approach that moves in the direction we're talking about? Yeah, there's there's a very good website called caringinfo.org, caringinfo.org, and on that website, you can download uh, each state's healthcare proxy form for free. You can download that because every state has their own, and you can print it out. And usually, the two pages that you need for designating an advocate for you are there. You complete it. You just put their name and, and date, and you then give them a copy and have a discussion with them. Let them know you've selected them. Usually you pick a second person in case that other person is not available, and you give them a copy as well. Give a copy to your doctor and one for yourself, so you'd make four copies. And that's really the, the start of good advanced care planning. So it's caring info, and that's all it's one word. That's right. Dot org. Yes. Okay. The big takeaway messages for people listening to us uh, as we wrap up our discussion what would they be? I would say everybody over 18 uh, who has the capacity to do so should complete a health care proxy form. They should go to that website or ask their doctor for a health care proxy form and complete that. And pick someone that you know and trust and who knows your wishes and values regarding how you live your life uh, and complete that form. And then secondly, if you do have an advanced or serious illness, 
talk to your doctor about what matters most to you so that you get the care you want and value. Dr. Dana Lustbader, palliative care physician with ProHealth New York, based in uh, New Hyde Park, talking with us on our program. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Bob Salter, Sports Radio 66 We are joined in uh, this portion of our program, joined by Melissa Norton. Melissa is Executive Director of Bottomless Closets. We're going to find out about Bottomless Closets in uh, our discussion. I think that a lot of the folks listening to our discussion today are going to be very interested in the work that this organization does. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. You have a very interesting background as well, because I know you had been involved in working with the ASPCA for a number of years. Um, how did you come to Bottomless Closet? I've been in the nonprofit world basically my entire career. Um, I'm actually an attorney by training, and when I went to law school, all I wanted to do was work in nonprofits. Um, I actually worked for the Madison Square Garden Cheering for Children Foundation uh, right out of law school. And then I started in a legal capacity at the ASPCA. For those who don't know, that's the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, and I worked my way up there um, to become the number two in the organization. I was chief of staff and general counsel. Um, and when I, was at the, when I joined the ASPCA, we were fairly small. Um, at about 125 people around the country. And by the time I left, we had over 800 people um, in the organization, so we grew substantially. Um, and looking at new opportunities after 13 years, I realized that one of the things I missed was a smaller organization where I felt a hands-on connection to the mission. And I personally love to work on people's resumes um, and help them transform into a, a new role um, as they, they go out in the job market. Um, and Bottomless Closet is a small organization that's New York City-based. Uh, we help women who have been re-entering the workforce or entering the workforce for the first time. Um, and one of the things that we do is help them with their resumes um, to help them succeed on the job. Okay, so when you say that you're helping uh, women in this regard, a couple thoughts come to mind. First of all, um, how old an organization is Bottomless Closet? When did it start? Bottomless Closet started in 1999 in response to the Welfare Act that was passed during the Clinton administration. We are embarking on our 20th year coming up, which is pretty exciting for us. And then the other thought that comes to my mind is, tell us about the women that Bottomless Closet works with. What are they like? So we serve a really big cross-section of New York City women, which could be any of us. Um, they're women who are homeless, domestic violence victims, uh, suffered with substance abuse, are getting out of prison, uh, have had issues with mental illness, long-term unemployment, even girls aging out of the foster care system or kids who are in the city college system. A lot of people who um, people wouldn't assume would necessarily have challenges in getting jobs or getting prepared for job interviews. Just because you're in a community college doesn't mean you have the resources to prepare for a job interview. So it really could be anybody. Uh, there are a lot of people who I think lost their jobs in the 2008 downturn and never quite got their stride back. So it's a range of people from someone who's never even gotten um, a GED to someone who's got a graduate degree. Okay, so that's a broad brush in terms of the people that you're working with. Um, there's so many different areas where potentially... 
you know, they can be helped. You have to have very comprehensive services. Let's talk about a couple of specific things. One is this whole approach to a resume or I guess a way of packaging oneself and marketing oneself. How do you phrase what's most important? Sure. Well, I think what we do best is turn applicants into candidates. Um, We help people look at their body of work or just what their life has been and create a resume. Oftentimes, we're dealing with women who've never had a resume before, never had a real full-time job before. Many have been stay-at-home moms. Um, So we work with them on their resume to build out something that represents who they are. Um, A lot of what they've done is not typical skills, um, but they are marketable skills, and we help cobble that resume together sometimes when there hasn't been one in the past. When you say typical skills, not necessarily... Right, so they haven't had formal education, or Mm -hmm. they haven't had formal work experience, per se, Um, but they've had a lot of life experience. Okay, and that's marketable. Absolutely. If they've been home taking care of a parent, they have the skills to be a home health aide, as an example. Mm-hmm. Packaging, marketing oneself is one aspect of this. Another big aspect of the interview process is even the whole approach to it. And that gets into, you know, mentally the approach going in. But then the thing that I, it, it, this very often makes me scream when I see how people um, come to interviews these days. Uh, very often it's in not the nicest attire, and that may be an understatement in some <laughs> cases. All right. How do you best advise the women that you're working with? So half of our office is actually a boutique. Um, it is stocked like any other boutique you would see on Madison Avenue. It is career clothing, um, accessories, handbags, shoes, jewelry, etc. When women come to us, many of them have been in the workforce before, um, have been in all kinds of jobs. They know exactly what's appropriate for an interview. Others have no idea. When they come to our offices, they are paired one-on-one with a volunteer career coach who's been fully trained to handle the duration of their appointment. One of the reasons we start in the clothing area versus on the resume and interview skills is because women form a relationship in the dressing room. Um, And you talk through certain things that impact how you clearly feel about yourself, and that is reflected in how you dress often. And people think today that if you're going on an interview at a technology company, uh, you know, if you're going to an interview on Google and you're going to work there and wear ripped jeans, you can wear ripped jeans on the interview. That's not the case. People still expect you to dress professionally for a job interview. Um, And that means that you're in a suit, you're in a dress, um, or at the very least you're you're in a blazer and you look neat and clean. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a suit. It could be just a clean white shirt, you know, well presented to someone. And um, that's not always apparent to someone who's never been in the workforce before. No, I very often have said to um, students when talking about this that an approach I like to take in interviews is I try to dress better than the person who's interviewing me because I want that person to be looking at me and going, wow, that's pretty impressive. Right, and I think what we, what we tell people is we, we don't want you to have to worry about what you look like. People should take one look at you when you walk in, think you look neat, clean, professional, mm-hmm. and then focus on the content of what you have to say. And when we get into that content of what we say in the interview, 
I guess, what kind of advice do you provide? So a lot of what we provide is very basic in nature. Things like making eye contact, shaking someone's hand firmly, telling your story, what is your elevator pitch. A lot of these women, again, don't have haven't been in environments where they've felt good about themselves, don't trust people, don't pick their head up when they walk in the our door. Their head is down, they've been treated like a number in a system for most of their lives and not treated with respect. So a lot of what we do is help to build their confidence, their self-esteem, and have them tell their story in a thoughtful way to show that they're qualified candidates for the job. And when you're doing that, what do you see in terms of a transition from the women themselves? What I most see, obviously, you can see the change physically because we change their clothing and they've often come in and, you know, a T-shirt and pants and whatever they've gotten often from other sources that's just street clothes and they're they're not well-dressed. Obviously, you can see the physical transformation of what they look like. We actually take a photo of when they arrive in offices and when they leave and people can think that's pretty superficial, but what I see and what I think is really important is look on their faces. I've come up in the elevator with people when they don't know who I am, and they're just very downtrodden. Again, they're not making eye contact. There's definitely not a smile on their face. And when they take those photos, their head is held high, and they're smiling ear to ear. Um, and the comments that I hear are things like, this is the first time anybody's treated me with respect. I've always been treated like a number. I've never been waited on in my life. Um, again, the, the difference is so subtle if you've heard it on paper versus seeing it in person. But really what you're changing is people's opinion of themselves. One of the areas that I was reading about that um, Bottomless Closets also works on, which I found interesting, is in this area of financial management. Can you explain to us, to us what you do there? Sure. When you first come to our offices, you get all the clothing, accessories, resume help, interview skills that you need to ace your job interview. After that first appointment, hopefully you go out and get your job. Uh, When you come back, if you get the job, there's actually a bell that you ring up front, and the whole office stops and claps, which is a pretty awesome moment, not only for the applicant, but also for the people waiting who can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, At that point, you're actually entitled to two to three more outfits, so hopefully at the end of the process you have a week's worth of clothing. But you're also allowed to sign up for our series of workshops. Anybody who's ever walked in our doors, whether they get the job or not, can sign up for those workshops. And they fall into three primary areas, financial management, professional development, and personal enrichment. And the reason we offer financial management is because many of these women come in with a lot of debt, have no familiarity with the banking system, and are very reliant on check cashing places. So we start with everything at the very, very bottom, intro to banking, how to open a checking account, how to save money. Um, how to read, read your statement. Um, we offer programs in banks, and we really start at a very basic level. And the courses go up all the way to how to buy your first home. We work with people on their, how to understand their credit score. A lot of them just want basic knowledge about how to get out of the debt that they have. So it really runs the gamut. Uh, professional development, we have everything from how to do your LinkedIn profile to how to ask for an increase or a promotion, um, even how to understand your benefits. You know, it's things that we probably take for granted in certain cases because we've been working for many, many years. But benefits, if you've never seen before in a big company, can be very overwhelming to understand. So we help them with the basic needs they have to 
get in the job and stay in the job. You can actually graduate from our professional development and financial management series, which is another resume builder for our clients who are often long-term unemployed. Uh, on a personal enrichment, we have things to support women as they transition to work, even yoga for stress relief. Uh, we have a class at Sephora on what's workplace-appropriate makeup. So everything in that workshop series is supporting their journey to self-sufficiency. And what are some ways that people who are listening to our discussion today, some of whom clearly are in the category of being able to be helpful, what can they do to be supportive of your efforts? Well, we always take donations, <laughs> financial and in kind. Um, we are definitely in need of clothing, especially plus-size items. Um, oftentimes we get clothing that is not appropriate for our clients from a size perspective. I would say our average donor is a somewhere between a 4 and an 8, and our average client is somewhere between a size 14 and 18. So we always struggle to get plus-size career-appropriate clothing. Um, we also take handbags, jewelry, even hygiene items. Um, one of the things that I've learned since I've been there is that, you know, we can dress someone up to look great, but when they're living in a shelter and they don't have a toothbrush and toothpaste or deodorant, it may not make that much of a difference. So it's something that's very important to me is getting more hygiene items. We also have a very volunteer-driven program. Although we have 12 people in staff, we have over 200 volunteers. And the volunteers are the volunteer employment coaches that work directly with the clients. We also have people who come in, sort through clothing, steam the clothes. I've learned that people really like to steam, <laughs> steam things. It's very therapeutic for a lot of people who work all day in a corporate environment. They enjoy steaming. Um, we have people who just sit and create little goodie bags for our clients with some, some things that aren't career appropriate that we may, may get donated. Um, we have our entire workshop series is run by volunteers. All the teachers of the courses are volunteers, many from corporate environments, many who have studied a topic and want to share their knowledge. There's lots of ways to volunteer. Um, and the other thing is we work with a lot of corporations who host our clients on their sites for what we call career days. So the clients will enjoy a half-day program at a corporate environment. We work with everybody from a bank to a fashion company, and it's a half-day immersive of, let's say, something like lots and lots of interview prep training, or how to do your elevator pitch, or um, how to navigate a corporate environment or a corporate system. So lots of different skills that people can impart to others, but again, much of this is volunteer-driven, and so more volunteers would be great. And one area especially that I'd like to point out is volunteers from or underserved communities, volunteers who are bilingual. We don't get enough of those kinds of volunteers. Okay, how do people reach Bottomless Closet? So our website is bottomlessclosetnyc.org. We're at 16 East 52nd Street between 5th and Madison in Manhattan. Our phone number is 212-563-2499. Okay, repeat all three of those, please. Bottomless Closet NYC. Dot org, 16 East 52nd Street in Manhattan, between Madison and 5th Avenues, 212-563-2499. Okay, we're talking with Melissa Norton, who is Executive Director of Bottomless Closets, and I'm Bob Salter. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with Bottomless Closet. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the extra support. And I'm Bob Salter. This is a very interesting discussion because... We're going to touch a bit on uh, history with an author who is joining us by phone. Uh, Joan Brady is joining us actually from 
England, and she's going to talk with us about a publication entitled Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. This book is out on the hardcover. First of all, Joan, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning to you. In beginning this discussion, I always like to ask authors, what motivates you in writing? Oh, habit. <laughs> what a great line that is. And when did, well, when, when did that habit start? Well, I married a writer, and at one point I said to him, I have an idea for a story for you. And I tr- explained and explained and explained. And he said, I don't get it. You'll just have to write it yourself. <laughs> so I did. And he helped, and it was very, it, I did very well with it. Your motivation for doing this book. Why this book, and why now? Well, this book now is because I got into some legal trouble, trouble myself, and I didn't know anybody who'd faced anything like I was facing. I mean, it was a tiny little thing, but they were threatening me with prison. And the only person I knew who'd actually been threatened like that was Alger, and he was dead. So I couldn't actually appeal to him personally, but I could look into his case and find out what they had done, you know, how it had built up. I didn't really have much feeling as to whether he was guilty or not. How has that changed? Oh, definitely. Within the first month or so, I could see that he was as innocent as they come. And you can see it online. It's not troublesome. It's not difficult to see. It's right there in front of you, if you want to look. Then a little bit of background on Alger Hiss. A lot of people may know the name from history. Who was Alger Hiss? Well, he was was born in Baltimore, very bright, um, graduated from Johns Hopkins, went to Uh, where he won everything, and went to Harvard, where he did stunningly well again, Um, Harvard Law School, Uh, became Justice Holmes's clerk for a year, enjoyed that greatly. Then he went to a law firm in Boston, and then to a law firm in New York. He went to New York because his wife wanted to go there, and he was very, very fond of his wife. And this was would have been around 1933, and he just, one of his teachers was Justice Frankfurter, one of the more eminent justices of the Supreme Court, and who urged him to join the Roosevelt uh, administration. So he went to Washington and did join the administration and rose up through its ranks, um, and in the, he, he became the organizing secretary general of the United Nations, I mean, in effect, it's secretary, first secretary general. And when he'd done that and come home carrying the charter in a special plane, he, he shortly after that, he left to become president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he, that's what he was doing when he found, as people did in those days, his name in the newspaper as, as a, being accused of being a communist. Okay, now, you know, historically, we have to, sort of turn back the clock to yeah, 1948. That, that period of time when, you know, something like that happening was, this was not an unusual occurrence in this country, was it? Not remotely. I mean, thousands of people were, in the end, I mean, many thousands of people were ruined by this, the committee that issued these statements. And, um, I mean, and they, they went all over the place. It wasn't 
just people like Alger. It was mainly academics and anybody who might be talking about things that were altruistic. Anything altruistic was viewed as very suspect uh, since they were worried about the social uh, conditions in Russia and they thought they were afraid of a Russian revolution here. And the Russians were, or the communists, were viewed as extremely frightening. Um, we were told that uh, they would steal your soul. And, I mean, children as far away as Canada couldn't sleep without the lights on because they were terrified of being abducted by communists, rather like being abducted by aliens. It was a very scary time. You know, to those of us in the present time, yeah. thinking back to this, it sounds like the script of a movie. This couldn't be real life. I I tried. I thought of doing it as a novel, and then I thought no fiction editor is going to uh, allow any of this stuff. On the other hand, suppose your name appeared in the paper as a jihadist. What would happen to you? I'd be ruined. <laughs> that's that's the way it went. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your name appears in the newspaper in this fashion. Uh-huh. Okay, then what do you do to, you know, is is it even possible to think at that time there was anything that you could do to appeal to try to correct the situation? Well, I think, first off, if you were in some, if you were in Alger's position, if you were somebody like that, you simply ignored it. It went away. I mean, that's what all his friends urged him to do. But by this time, the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, in charge of such issuing such accusations, uh, had already put away um, ten Hollywood writers, as per the movie Trumbo. Okay, well, these, there were these ten. And, but you see, the thing is that while HUAC was, of, that the House Un-American Activities Committee was doing a lot of stuff, it was... Uh, upsetting a lot of people, it wasn't really getting results. It was supposed to be getting uh, spies in government. And it hadn't done anything except get people who wouldn't name their friends um, and ruin lives Mm -hmm. because they appeared as communists. And it is important to bear in mind that the Communist Party was completely legal at the time. So was being a communist. The the fear had to do with this soul-stealing thing, you know. Uh, and the fact that you were trying to undermine the American way of life, even if you were legal. So when the when the accusation against Alger appeared in the New York Times, he it wasn't the first time I think that it had, by any matter of means, been done for a lot of people. I mean, the, the accusations were even against Roosevelt's mother, which is, seems to me particularly odd, um, and. Einstein was supposed to be um, a communist agitator. They were a very strange committee, and they were beginning to lose power in Congress. And they were really on the edge of being shut down uh, when this um, business appeared, when this thing with Alger appeared. Uh, And Alger felt there was a matter of principle involved. He didn't have to reply. If he hadn't replied, this whole case would never have happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did reply. He not only replied, he demanded the opportunity to deny the charges under oath. He wrote his own death warrant. In doing, uh, doing the research that you have done on him and also on you know the work of the committee, 
where where did you look? What what sort of sources have you tapped into? Well, they're all online. Mm-hmm. You look you could look on, under the uh, hearings of the House on American Activities. They're all archived there. You can find them all, at least all that deal with him and with that period. Um, then you go to the newspaper, the old newspapers online, and you check what the newspapers said following the hearings. And that's where you begin to see what happened, what was happening, because the newspapers don't report what happened. They report sort of odd, strange things. His first hearing, he appeared, and he did extremely well in it, except that nobody would talk about the charges except him. He kept trying to introduce them, and they kept evading them. Uh, So he left feeling he'd accomplished something, but he wasn't quite sure what. And the next, next day came the headline that the committee was in the verge of on the verge of cracking the spy case in fact it said that nixon was on the verge of cracking the the spy case nixon was a newcomer to this panel he was a very junior congressman but the panel was really made up of rather stupid hacks and they must i had to have found the brilliant nixon in their midst must have been an astonishing thing but I, and this was clearly Nixon's doing, that you know, as he says in his tapes. I mean, there is another source for them. I I had him convicted long before the the uh, grand jury indicted him, uh, and he says he won the case in the papers, and he did leaking all over the place. When you look back at the facts, look back at the things you've been able to uncover online, what? was the motivation for Richard Nixon in this case? In other words... Oh, ambition, very simple. Very simply. He he had just won an election against a guy called Jerry Voorhees, and he had done it using uh, red-baiting. He had... I mean, and in his in his tapes, he also says about Jerry Voorhees, it never occurred to me that he was a communist. I, he's one of the most decent human beings I ever knew. But you don't understand. I had to win. What was the downfall of Alger Hiss like? Well, it happened within a single week. I mean, by the time uh, he, I think he'd seen them, he, he'd gone to see them on Thursday, Thursday. And by the following week, he was a ruined man. I mean, the... Uh, business that uh, Nixon was on the verge of cracking this non-existent spy case came first. Then came an announcement that they were uh, that, they, that he was the accused and that they were traveling to a secret location to interview a mystery witness who would tell who was telling the truth, either him or his accuser, Whitaker Chambers. So they all flew to New York and they got a suite in the Commodore Hotel and. No, they went to the they went to a, uh, the the courthouse there. That's what they did, and in that in the room in the in the hearing room uh, appeared their mystery witness, who was Whitaker Chambers, the very man who'd done the accusation. And it's a very fascinating interview hearing because in this it's quite clear that Chambers knows absolutely nothing about Alger except that he had he must it's clear that he's met him at some point or other in his past and that he's been in his house because he remembers a red cigarette case but he doesn't remember anything else he doesn't remember Alger's height or or his uh, you know he, he says he's deaf in one ear and he wasn't he doesn't know anything and after they've done about 25 minutes of this hearing uh, which is 3 hours long um 
chambers, the witness says, can we go off the record? And Nixon says, off the record, just like that. And there are two and a half hours that are blank. And when they come back, another, say, five, six minutes, something like that, everything's fine, everybody's happy, and there's been a change made in the year of uh, Chambers's study as a communist spy. He says he was a communist spy. The idea is so absurd that it hardly makes any difference. But the thing is, he says that he had given it all up in 1937. That is his last line, almost his last line before the two-and-a-half-hour break. When the two-and-a-half-hour break is over, Nixon says, so you haven't seen Mr. Hiss since 1938. This doesn't sound like much, but it, what, what clearly went on then was that Chambers knew he had papers dated 1938 that he could say he'd got from Alger. And that is exactly what happened. What a bizarre case. Yeah. And that may be the understatement of the day, to say the least. In doing it, it is, it, yeah, go ahead. In doing this book, I mean, some of the people who are listening to us are probably thinking, the thing I'm about to ask, what, what is your hope, what, what motivated you in trying to get this information out to the public? Well, I think once I had decided, once I'd started to look, it became such an intriguing puzzle. I mean, it just, it, it kept having these strange, throwing up these very weird things like this hearing, and it, they did, it did it one after another after another. They were just really strange things that went on. And you, keep, you put together these pieces, and I think one of the things that's most amazing is that the FBI was investigating Alger. They'd been investigating him since, of course, his, his early days in the, in the State Department. And one of the things that's very interesting is that there's not a single thing in the FBI files that even remotely points to his being a subversive. Um, he's supposed to have read a report on the atomic bomb, and his wife is supposed to have been a member of the uh, League of Amer- uh, Women Shoppers. That's the most radical stuff they could find. There is nothing there. But they did find massive amounts of detail about Alger's life. Of course they did. I mean, including they, they even interviewed his, his son's babysitters and his stepson's psychotherapist. Uh, and what they m- built was a huge amount of innocent data, and they manipulated it so that Chambers knew, by the time that Chambers actually came to testify in court, he was filled with detail about Alger's life. He sounded like he knew him very well uh, because he had all this detail. And Alger was not, you know, didn't have any of it. Um, he just, it was, after all, 13 years before, and he just didn't know. An incredible case. And when we look at history and think about the legacy of this case, what's the legacy? Well, I think probably it's, you know, that old Santayana thing. Those who will not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. And certainly... A thing like Cambridge Analytical and Analytica and its gathering of five thousand data points on every American. This kind of thing is very frightening. I think. I think that really is frightening. I don't think the jihadist thing is as frightening, as, you know, by any means as frightening as it's painted. But the data gathering really is. They can make a case against anybody. 
it doesn't matter who they are or how innocent they are. They, they, they couldn't have been anybody more innocent, really, than Alger. Uh, he just was a guy who made a terrible mistake in demanding this hearing. An interesting discussion with uh, Joan Brady on our program. The book is entitled Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. What's the early reaction to this book? So far as I I really don't know much about it, I'm sorry to say. I mean, I just don't know. Okay. One of the things that's difficult about living abroad and having your contacts in America is (laughs) you don't hear very much. Um, it did very well here, and wonderful reviews, but uh, I just haven't heard much. And I think one of the troubles, of course, with a book like this, is that you have Trump sucking the air out of all the news about this kind of thing. In a way, some might think, when you look at some of the comparisons to today, that this might be something that could spark the interest of some people in the topic. Well, you would think so, and I think, but I think part of the trouble is that it's terribly important to the Republican Party to keep Aldrich guilty, and anything that actually shows that he was not is not going to be on anybody's agenda. You see, the thing is, this is the one thing that they can point to. They, they had 30 years of this committee. They destroyed thousands of lives, my father amongst them. Uh, they, you know, they cost millions of dollars. They caused huge amounts of upset. And the only thing they can point to as an achievement is Alger Hiss. And this, I think, may be a major part of it. I could, I, people would, I had real trouble finding somebody to publish it there. They said it was just no longer interesting. And I can't, I mean, after all, basically, the thing is a nonfiction thriller. It shouldn't, I mean, I, in fact, I rather, I do kind of wish I'd changed the names. Hmm. And flogged it as a, you know, as a fiction. But I don't think, I mean, that pumpkin, nobody would believe in that. I thank you very much for sharing the insights that you have on um, this page or pages from history. I think it's a very interesting uh, discussion. The book, again, is titled Alger Hiss Framed, A New Look at the Case That Made Nixon Famous. It's out in hardcover. Joan Brady, the author, has joined us on our program. Joan, thank you very much. Certainly good luck with your writing and the best with this book, too. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Well, that's going to do it for our show. It's been uh, quite a week. One will certainly never forget in terms of the history of this country with the massive day of demonstrations, protests yesterday, most of them peaceful, fortunately. And then all those acts of looting, incidents of violence in the past week. We will see you bright and early next Sunday morning at 6 o'clock. This is Bob Salter. Along at 7 o'clock, it's Ann Ligori who will be talking golf. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge. And Mike Francesa is by after 9 this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.